0: Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a really special guest. Dr. Lynn Hudson is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Illinois Chicago. Specializing in African American history, women and gender history, public history, and the history of the U.S. West, She's a graduate of UC Santa Cruz, earned her master's degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and her PhD in history from Indiana University. She's the author of a fascinating book on the folklore around the life of Mary Ellen Pleasant, a woman born into slavery who would go on to become a gold rush era millionaire and abolitionist. The Making of Mammy Pleasant was published in 2003 and was awarded the Barbara Penny Kanner Prize from the Western Association of Women Historians. In addition, she has published an award-winning piece about William Sharon, a wealthy former U.S. Senator from Nevada whose scandal-ridden life was the subject of court cases that riveted Victorian San Francisco. Lynn's most recent book, West of Jim Crow, is a detailed look into the institutionalized racism and segregation in California. As she describes in our conversation... Is both a story about the ways Californians tried to control, contain, and restrict African Americans, as well as a story of the incredible courage of those that resisted and fought against this discrimination. A Pasadena native, Lynn has a great personal story as well. Her parents valued public education, and they kept her in the city's public school system at a time when many families moved or enrolled their children in private schools as a reaction to desegregation. And exposure to some great teachers and experiences helped shape her career. Prior to teaching at the University of Illinois Chicago, Lynn was the History Department Chair at McAllister College in Minnesota and has taught courses on race and gender history at several schools, including UC San Diego and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So without further delay, my conversation with Dr. Lynn Hudson. Lynn, thank you very much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. I'm so happy to talk to
0: you. So I was first introduced to your excellent book, which is West of Jim Crow. Uh, when I started doing research on segregation in Pasadena, I was doing a lot of, a bit of research in, on an episode that I will f- hopefully release uh, next couple of months. And I did not realize that you were from Pasadena originally. And so I was wondering if you can maybe talk a, a little bit about your personal history in Pasadena and how it impacted your interest in history.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I didn't really think that being from Pasadena shaped my interest in history at first. I, I went away to college to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I had had a a, a positive history experience, history class, a class I really got into um, in high school, and so I was a history major in college. But I didn't, I didn't really think about. Pasadena being a part of that story or, you know, how it shaped my interest. From there, I went to grad school in history, but it wasn't until I started doing this book that I realized how many things about Pasadena shaped my interest in history and shaped my commitment to racial justice and Black freedom struggles. So, you know, one of the things you figure out (laughs) is that it really matters where you're from right? Um, As you get older. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be in Pasadena after and going to public schools after the court ordered mandate that the city comply with Brown versus Board of Education. So I, you know, I, I came to realize that Supreme Court decision really changed lives, right? Pasadena was the only school district west of the Mississippi that was forced to comply with Brown because they had not complied with Brown and the schools were so segregated. And that case, that Jackson case um, in the 60s meant that by the time I came around in public schools in the 70s, I was sent from away from the Linda Vista San Rafael area where I grew up, right, and bused to Cleveland Elementary and then McKinley Junior High School and then John Muir High School. It was really just partly luck. But that's when I was born, and that's right, and that I grew up with parents who also um, were not part of the whole white flight movement. You know, I, I go, went to school with a lot of kids whose parents then took them right out of the public schools after that court mandate, and they went to Lock and Flintridge, Flintridge or private schools, right, like Westridge or Poly. Um, but my parents believed in public education. My mom worked at Head Start, and um, they believe very strongly in public schools and public education. So I was lucky, and that going to school then meant I went to school with all kinds of students. I had all kinds of teachers, right? Um, and and then just things happen. You know, things happen when you do that. You you meet friends, parents, and you you find out. Oh, wow, kids are like each other and not like each other for all kinds of different reasons, right? But another thing that happened to me is that Mac Robinson, Jackie Robinson's brother, worked at John Muir High School. And I would talk to him afterward, when I was waiting for someone to pick me up or waiting for the bus or whatever. And Mac Robinson was doing some excellent work at John Muir Elementary School. I mean, high school. He was talking to us about segregation and about his brothers, you know, not just Jackie, but also Edgar, who got beat up by the Pasadena Police Department when he went to the Rose Parade. Right. So. I learned things inside the classroom and outside the classroom in school that I know shaped my interest in history for sure.
0: That's amazing. So as a teacher yourself, I think it's very fitting that you've credited your teachers as being some of the biggest influences in in your life. Mm -hmm. And you referenced it earlier, but you had a great story where in eighth grade, your uh, teacher, uh, Alma Stokes took students around in her station wagon, to different parts of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And that's an incredible story. You know, how did experiences like that shape your need to better understand other people and kind of tell their stories?
1: You know, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And Mrs. Alma Stokes is a power to be reckoned with. I bet some of your listeners know her because she has been organizing in Pasadena for decades. She, I wish I could remember the name of the program, but in the 70s there was grant money and programs. I think that probably came about as a result of that court order, and and these programs and grants were about sort of well, how are we going to make this work, right? Sure, we we're going to have integrated schools, but how can we make it work? And and so I was in this program where I think the idea was you build bridges across groups of cliques in junior high or what we now call middle school, right? So there were all kinds of kids in this group. And what the stated aim was on the grant was probably, you know, multicultural education and learn about this. That. But, but Alma Stokes was way smarter than whoever made up that grant. Or she, she knew that what you really needed to do was let kids become friends right? And let them become friends and find out what you find out when you meet people from all over the world, right? Which is about humanity and about justice. But she took us to, right, all kinds of things. We went to museums. We went to, one time we actually visited my mom's job because we went and visited a Head Start classroom and worked with the kids uh, that day. And we did, so we were kind of also doing some volunteer work, right? And um, it was just, it was just an amazing experience. No, I just learned so much about what it meant to be in the world and and also what a sheltered childhood I had had in some ways. um, But I also, I mean, I, I have to say that, you know, I had a lot of teachers who were so committed in the Pasadena Unified School District because they were doing the work. This is what it means to have a diverse classroom. And they were doing the work and they were amazing. I had so many great teachers at McKinley and Cleveland and and uh, John Muir,
0: I was lucky. Thank you for sharing that. So I think it'd be a good place to transition to talking about your book. Okay. Which is mm-hmm. West of Jim Crow, and the subject of Jim Crow laws is not new to you. Although this is a recent book, you know you previously wrote a book about Mary Ellen Pleasant. However, because of your Pasadena connection, this is a very personal book to you. Right. Right. Can you tell me about a little bit about how you're exposed to maybe the Pasadena plunge. Sure, sure. And I mean, you mentioned that you were part of the busing program and you saw firsthand mm-hmm. like the white flight you mentioned where uh, students of your, mm-hmm. or fellow students of yours moved either loc- either to school at different schools or they physically moved uh, out, of, yep. out of the area. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the plunge and then kind of your experiences with Jim Crow in Pasadena uh, in addition to the kind of busing issue that you've already described,
1: sure. You know, and I should say first and foremost, obviously, I grew up with white privilege, right? So I didn't experience the plunge in a, in any kind of way that was harmful or you know humiliating. Um, my my relationship to that story is that I I heard the story right first mm-hmm. heard the story from my parents because my parents kept telling me we don't go there, you know. I probably was bothering them about why don't we go there? (laughs) Why won't you take me to swimming? And they probably, and they, I remember them saying, we don't go there. That has a history of not letting in black people. Right. And we don't go there. So, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, maybe, okay, maybe they're telling me the truth, but you don't believe everything your parents tell you. Right. Um, And so one of the things that happened when, you know, that first book that I wrote about the abolitionist Mary Ellen Pleasant allowed me to discover this rich history of Black people in the 1800s fighting Jim Crow, right? Because she had one of the very first court cases that challenged a pub public transportation for not picking up Black riders, right? When she was refused uh, entrance to a streetcar in San Francisco, she sued the company, Um, and then um, it went all the way to the California Supreme Court in 1866. She won initially, but then she lost when the company you know, appealed. But that case alerted me to this tr- strong tradition in California of African Americans organizing and their allies, in this case, a lot of white abolitionists, right, organizing against Jim Crow. So that, ki- that first book, you know, and part of the reason I wrote that first book was, I just thought, wow, okay, I lo- I'm proud of my public school education, and I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. But I didn't learn anything about her, So what's wrong with this picture? How did I not know that, you know, before Sojourner Truth before, of course, 100 years before Rosa Parks sat down on that bus, a black California woman challenged public transportation, Jim Crow and public transportation. How did I not know that? So then I started thinking, you know, well, there's a lot more here to the fight against Jim Crow. And that got me started on the second book, where I went up and down the state to public libraries, to the California State Archives in Sacramento, to, you know, Pasadena Public Library, private collections. And I was looking for stories about Jim Crow in the state. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I remember thinking, oh, and there is that story about the Brookside Plunge. I don't know. Maybe that's a story I'll tell in in this book. Maybe, maybe not. No, I don't know. So as the project developed, I quickly realized that I needed to look at the papers of the NAACP. And I wanted to look at the Pasadena branch, but, you know, the local branches, the Oakland branch, San Francisco branch. And some of those are in Berkeley. The Western branches ha- are some of those papers are in Berkeley. But the national papers and a lot of branch papers are in D.C. at the Library of Congress. So mm-hmm. I went to the Library of Congress look- and started looking up. Any California branch records I could get my hands on, right? But I also, they're, they're really, they're organized in very, <laughs> very difficult. It's sort of difficult sometimes to find what you're, what you're after, but you can also look at things by topic. So you could look at, say, lynching. Hey, what's, what does the NAACP have related to lynching? Clippings files, court case records, letters from branch presidents, all kinds of things. So I also looked at topics and I looked at lynching and I also looked at swimming pools. And there I found all of these letters that the Pasadena and the L.A. branch, because the president of the L.A. branch was involved in the court case, Thomas Griffiths, they had written all these letters to Thurgood Marshall, who had written them back. And copies of his letters were in the Library of Congress. So then I had this eureka moment like, oh, my God, my parents weren't making this up. Believe your parents, listeners. They were telling me in a really important story. And it wasn't just important because I grew up in Pasadena. See, sometimes that that also was playing in my mind. Like, well, you think that's important, but that might not be in the history of the state. That just might not be that important, right? Maybe there are other pool cases that are more important. Maybe, there, maybe that really wasn't such an important story. But the more I read the more I read about that case and other pool cases, the more I realized that the Brookside plunge case was v- extremely important in the history of Jim Crow, not just in Pasadena but in the state and in the country. Partly because Pasadena had the money to have one of the most the earliest and, you know, highest grossing public outdoor swimming pools in the country, right? Of course, California has the most recreational pools when there starts to be a leisure craze and a pool building craze, kind of, and most of that is around the 20s. But Pasadena is early, 1914, it opens, right? Um, and again, because of the climate, because of the tax dollars. So that meant that Pasadena was early also in setting up a system of segregating pools, right? Because you can read about a lot of pool cases in the NAACP papers in Washington, D.C., but most of the cases they're fighting happen in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, right? Right. They don't the pass so in that way Pasadena is important because it's an early example right, but also because it went on so long because they fought mm-hmm. and fought and fought and it took thirty years plus right and some people would argue you know it's, it's still not really truly integrated, but it took a long time for that court case and it's also important because the national office was paying attention attention right remember Thurgood Marshall right and the legal defense fund, though that team of lawyers are going to be the lawyers that win Brown versus Board of Education, They're looking for precedent-setting cases that build, they're the building blocks to take down Plessy versus Ferguson and the separate but equal doctrine, right? They're looking to see how can they take it down. So pool cases now, pool cases really aren't going to be their best thing. Of course, they're going to end up going with school cases, right? Pools are kind of messy, messy business. People have bathing suits, and there's nakedness, and there's bodies mingling, and that's really not what the NAACP wants. It's going to be obviously much more successful for them to argue, as they do in Brown, that school children are being deprived an equal education, and that's bad for their self-esteem, and that's bad for the United States, and it's bad for Americans if we raise a generation of kids who think they're not citizens, not right. Can't participate. So, anyway, that's a long answer, but um, it was a combination of things that sort of led me to the plunge and to uh, realizing that that was an important story in my book.
0: That's a great example. And so, your book is incredibly well written and well researched and paints a very vivid picture of California that questions a lot of our pre existing notions of racism in the state. Like you said, you know, you kind of grew up very in a privileged in a white family. I was I was raised in a similar way, and we're very fortunate for because of that. Did your thesis or the questions that you wanted to answer evolve from when you started the project? And how was your understanding of the subject, or was it challenged during your research?
1: Oh, that's a great question, James. Well, there are a lot. There were many, many surprises on this journey to finishing this book. When I started, I wasn't really sure about what stories should go in and which ones weren't going to make it in. I was trying to write a book that showed the different kinds of segregation that existed in the state and the very diverse ways that um, African-Americans and their allies fought against it. So I wanted to, I didn't, you know, it wasn't, it's not just about schools. It's not just about pools. It's right. I wanted to really show, again, a, a range of ways that Jim Crow worked. Get into the nooks and crannies of how it actually worked, you know, don't and show that it was pervasive throughout the state, too. I wanted to make sure that I had stories that um, showed Jim Crow up and down the state. So I, like I told you, I sort of went on many road trips to different libraries, Riverside Public Library, San Diego my historical Society and Library to search to find stories that I felt could show the breadth and depth of how segregation and anti-black violence and discrimination worked, um, so some stories were great, but I didn't have enough sources. Now there were lots of great stories about sort of entrepreneurial like black businessmen in San Diego or even Julian, California, you know who ran a hotel. I think the Robinson family was our name, and they were wonderful stories, but they didn't didn't have enough sources. Uh, so that was part of how the book shape was shaped. It was sort of, you know, again, looking for stories up and down the state, but also stories that told a bigger story, um, you know, histories that told, told us something about how Jim Crow worked in California. So for example, Allensworth was a story that was known to me, a history. Uh, I knew there was a black colony in that dusty town Um, but I didn't know if it, how that related to my theme of Jim Crow of West of Jim Crow, right? What, what does it tell us? And then when I started investigating it further, I found, I was like, are there enough sources you know, maybe people already know what there is to know about Allensworth there. A book had just recently come out when I was working on my book about Allensworth and it was um, written by one of the women who was a, a descendant of one of the pioneers. And I thought, well, look at this, you know, maybe that's all there is to know here. But then I found out there were about 50 oral histories that were done as part of the investigation to form a state park, um, 50 oral histories with people who had lived there. Right? And they were all at the California State Archives in Sacramento, and they said they would make copies of them for me. So then I had this amazing material. And once I started reading it, I realized, oh, there's more here. You know, everything. There's more to learn here. And I also sort of learned about, it It just helped me realize that people that went there to live in this place, which is, you know, kind of near Visalia, right? Um, It's not, they don't go there from the South. Most of the people that founded that all Black town are moving there from the LA area or the Bay Area because they've already tried to live west of Jim Crow, free of Jim Crow, and it didn't work. It didn't happen. So it did in fact become a chapter in the book because it also tells us a lot about how entrenched and pervasive segregation and anti-black violence and hostilities were in the early 20th century because it gets founded around 1908, right? So already African-Americans, many of them maybe from Kansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, had already moved west. We call that generation sometimes the exodusters, right? Their parents had moved west to California, but then they found that California did not offer them jobs, did not offer them land or, you know, Jim Crow free living. So that that was an example of a story that I didn't know would be in the book, but then it ended up being because it told more about Jim Crow than I realized.
0: That's a perfect segue to My next question, which is, California has traditionally been a place where immigrants and migrants have gone to start a new life. You know, on a personal level, you know, three out of my four grandparents were from Europe. My one native born grandparent was from Illinois. Mm. They all moved to California because they thought they'd get a better life in the 40s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw this large influx of, like you said, African-Americans that relocated to California from, and, and California, Los Angeles, Pasadena, From the South, you mentioned uh, the Robinson, Jackie Robinson's family came from Georgia. But then these new Californians realized quickly that the same oppressive tactics that they thought and they knew in the South were actually here in California. Mm -hmm. And so how much were these tactics brought to California from other parts of the country versus how... Were these tactics homegrown? You know, California has a complicated history with its with the missions right. and the Spanish periods and the ranch periods. Right. So, kind of what what are your thoughts on terms of um, were they homegrown tactics, or were they brought in from other parts of the country, or they kind of comb- combination of of the two? <laughs>
1: Right. You mean the tactics used by sort of white supremacists and segregationists, Correct. Right?
0: Yes. Correct.
1: yes. Well, I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the missions because we can trace this history back to, right, settler colonialism. And um, an excellent book for people who are listening, if you haven't seen it yet, is the book City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who writes a book about the history of Prisons and jailing, human caging in Los Angeles, starting with missions, which were in fact the first jail. She argues, and that so so when I come into the story and my book starts around you know the eighteen with statehood eighteen fifty, but the majority of the book, of course, is about the twentieth century. Um, But by the time I when I'm starting my book, you know California has, as you mentioned, already had uh, a history of isolating, segregating, discriminating against, and killing, you know, people of color, Native Americans, and of course the Mexicans who were living on their own land until 1848, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So, we don't start statehood with some sort of blank slate, right? Um, You know, sometimes, well, it's not like this in the public schools now, but you know, the old, old versions of sort of California history, that were taught when I was in school was sort of the, you know, isn't this exciting, the gold rush statehood, everyone's free. It's a free state, free of slavery. And then end of story. That's how we start. Right. So um, I think it is important to point out that while a lot of the people who form the state, of course, have come from other places. There are many Southerners who are sympathetic to the Confederacy who settle in California and are part of building the state of California. But there are also a lot of abolitionists, including Mary Ellen Pleasant and her gang, her network, right, that also settle in the state. Um, In this way, California is a lot like Kansas, right? Kansas has this very contradictory sort of legacy of, you know, John Brown and abolitionism, but also pro-slavery folks who rush into the state to claim it for themselves. So I think in a lot of ways, California, of course, benefits from this free state identity um, and likes to harp on that. But, you know, many of the the reasons um, that some of those early legislators voted for no slavery in the state was because they didn't want any black people to live in the state. So we got to be really careful about that initial, you know, myth of California as this, you know, abolitionist, anti-slavery state. so that was part of part of what I think. I think that that but but back to your question which is about whether these things are homegrown, right? I think it's really important, you know, all students in American history but all of us right now in the age that we live in to acknowledge that white supremacy is a national project and every single part of the nation has been shaped by it and has shaped it. There is no part of the United States that has not shaped white supremacy or participated in it, right? That's that's just rule number 1. So, you know, kind of it's an it's a great question, but I think it's in many ways impossible to answer, right? Because when let's say that a southerner, a transplanted southerner comes to the state and is sympathetic to the confederates and they, you know, participate in trying to craft early Jim Crow laws. Though yes, those are brought in from southerners, but it's also something that Californians themselves craft. You know, First and second generation Californians will be just as committed to keeping certain institutions all white, like streetcars or the opera or the schools. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily because they're Southerners. I think we have to be careful of that because it's very easy for us in the West to say, well, that was brought in. We, we, we you know, we brought that in from the South and, and that's why it's here. Um, and thats that's a problem. We need to be careful about that. Californians, had their own reasons, white Californians, for wanting to support white supremacy and create it. You know, they created all kinds of new systems for it. You know, Pasadena didn't have a lot of models. Well, let's, they're not copying the South when they have a segregated pool and say Negroes can swim around one day a week. There are, there are very, very few outdoor public swimming pools in the South at that time, if any, right? So a lot of it's homegrown too.
0: Pasadena is a very interesting city, as we both very well know, because it does have agricultural roots in that it was a ranch with the missions. It was a place where people grew oranges, hence the orange groves and all that kind of stuff. Right. But following that period, it became a large tourist destination and retreat for wealthy residents. And so how do you think this... Income inequality contributed to the rise of Jim Crow style tactics and segregation in the city? And you can expand on it. Just, you know, if you want to talk about Pasadena, that'd be great. But if you want to expand on that to Los Angeles, uh, please do so.
1: Well, that's a really good question, too. Um, Income inequality, you know, is something, of course, that we could trace way back. Um, But I think it's important to link it, as you are doing, to segregation. Now, one of the things that happens in California is that California becomes again a a leader in in a particular kind of Jim Crow, and that is housing segregation right um and once you have African Americans being pushed into crowded neighborhoods that will become slums right like so for example not let- not renting or or selling to black people all across the Southland, right? We, the, LA has one of the most successful programs of uh, restrictive covenants, right? Deeds that have parts of the deeds that say you you cannot sell or lease or rent this property ever to, and then the list might say Negroes, Orientals, Mexicans, right? I'm using the racist terminology of the day, right? So those, I mean, restrictive covenants as as many scholars have written about, uh, have been used successfully all over the United States. I live in a city now, Chicago, that also used them to great effect to segregate their neighborhoods. But LA was one, was the, one of the leaders. And in fact, Lauren Miller, uh, uh, an attorney, an LA attorney who fought a lot of these cases, he, he said during his life, and he eventually was a judge in LA, that LA had more cases in the courts than any other city, right? By the 1950s, 40s and 50s. So so L.A. especially was extremely successful at segregating housing. And again, they did that by not you know, having certain kinds of legal documents that kept black people out of neighborhoods by. But they also did this extra in an extra legal way, which is meaning they would scare black people out of certain neighborhoods by burning a cross on their lawn or throwing rocks in their house. Right. So um, so in that way. If you push, if you keep people segregated in a neighborhood that you then provide no services to, right, and the schools deteriorate, then that kind of segregation, housing segregation, leads to income inequality, because there also might be no jobs around South Central where there are no buses going there anymore. There, And we see the repercussions of this, of course, with the so-called Watts riots and then again, um, Rodney King, Right. So certain neighborhoods became so-called slums, so-called ghettos, and, and then no services were there, right? No recreational facilities, no playgrounds, no, you know, the schools, as I say, deteriorate. So yes, yes. I mean, income inequality is a part of what, what keeps segregation going. It's, it's, it's sort of a self-perpetuating,
0: right, system. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've I just started doing research on redlining. Oh, yeah. And that's a whole nother topic. We, but um, yeah, it, it's an incredible part of our history that right. You know, we don't really talk about. And the more you kind of dive into this stuff, and I started this podcast thinking that it, it's just going to be a, one rabbit hole after another. And that's what it basically comes down to. You know, there was a um, the city council, it used to be called the, the city directors. And there was a, a director, um, A.I. Stewart, who was on the city council or He's was a director and then became a mayor and went on to, the, to be an assemblyman. Yes. And he was very powerful in the race restrictions.
1: Yes. He's mentioned in my book. I think I mentioned him because um, the women who were running the NAACP during the court case at the plunge, they knew that Stewart was um, a leader in developing segregated neighborhoods. Right. What was it? The Pasadena Improvement Association. Wasn't that right, the name right. of this organization? Yes. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I, so I mean, I've been trying to do a lot more research on that because it's, it's a fascinating history and it goes, Yes, it dovetails really yes. well into kind of what you're talking about in the segregation that the city was facing yeah. um, because of the, because of the income inequality. Yeah. And, and those, those neighborhoods have not fully recovered from those efforts. Yeah. I mean, the, the city has never recovered because of the work that was done in the, in the thirties and forties and beyond.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those neighborhoods are still segregated, exactly like they were before. Yeah, there's a great interview with um, Dr. Edna Griffin, the medical doctor who was president of the NAACP during the second wave of, of uh, protest against the pool in the 30s, and um, she mentions Stewart in one of these interviews where she says, you know, this is not an accident that the plant that they're fighting the integration of the pool. The, the folks that are fighting it are the directors and they are all about segregation.
0: Right. Yeah, and I, I've been going through newspaper clippings on the Improvement Association. I mean, they, ha, they had an office in uh, in downtown yeah. uh, Pasadena. So, I mean, it wasn't just some kind of offshoot. I mean, it was a, it was a very organized effort. Um, yes. There's a very powerful line in your book in which you write, segregation made deep inroads in the Western landscape and it shaped Pasadena's landscape culture and identity as a city what do you think we need to do to ensure that we fully acknowledge and learn from the darker side of our city's history Wow okay that's a that's a very uh, light question so
1: <laughs> so obviously because I'm a historian that I think that history holds a lot of promise here I think that if we raise up children to understand this history and not shy away from it to learn about it to find out. I mean, and I, again, I'm not just talking about the history of white supremacy. The other thing that I, f- I found so inspiring when I was doing the research for my book is I also got to learn about this incredible history of resistance to white supremacy. You know, and I think right now we really need to shine a light on that. You know, we know a lot right now about the strength of white supremacy in the United States, we're, we're, it's a moment where we are seeing it. Um, people that didn't see it before maybe are seeing it. Um, uh, and we need to know, we need to, we need to acknowledge that for generations and generations, Americans have fought back against white supremacy, all kinds of Americans. You know, and all kinds of citizens. And I think that's really important because I think when we erase this interracial uh, resistance, we don't, we don't understand how strong that tradition is. You know? And in mm-hmm. California, there is a very strong tradition of fighting back. I mean, the parents that fought against the segregated schools and won that case, the Spangler case, the Jackson case, and, and that led to that mandate, they were some powerful righteous leaders in our city. And, and they're still there, right? Um, and we need to acknowledge that, that this has happened and that it, and it's still happening right now. I think it's, it's really important to not just shine a light on the, the deep roots that white supremacy has in California, though that's the point of my book, but also to see where those bridges got built and how they, and those alliances, because, you know, segregationists don't want us to see that, right? They don't want us to see that. We want to, but, but it's really important. And that And that resistance doesn't start in 1960, right? It goes way back. Now, historian, the historian Jacqueline Dowd-Hall coined the term, the long civil rights movement, about how we need to understand that it doesn't just go from 1960 to 69. It's not a 60, 60- Right. And you, we know from the Montgomery bus boycott, we know about the 50s, but it goes way back. Right. These alliances and these between progressive folks and labor folks and right, farm workers and Japanese Americans fighting internment. Right. There are all kinds of folks in the state who've been pushing back against white supremacy and segregation. And I think that's that's something that we should also be proud of and, and hold up. You know, as an example, when I was studying the history of Allensworth, and I was really—it's a really sad and depressing story about the the kinds of problems with keeping that community going. Partly because of the first, the lack of water, but then there was alkaline in the water, and so there was—it was poisonous. And one of the articles I found about it was in the Malcriado, the farm workers' newspaper, uh, and they were also fighting against the agribusiness that took all the good water, right, um, and they were having to pay for clean water, um, and they were in working with Allensworth in sort of, again, another important coalition of Californians fighting back against the kind of all of the implications of segregation.
0: So do you, th- do you think we need a statewide effort on, on kind of promoting these stories, both the, the oppressive tactics of segregation? But also, like you said, the lifting up the voices of the people that challenge these. Oh yeah. When I think about growing up, and I mentioned this in the, in the notes that we, we shared, that up until twenty seventeen, all fourth graders had to build uh, mission right. models. Yes, yes. That's kind huh. of tapered out. They've kind of restructured the program a little bit. But, but I mean, it's a state. It was a statewide effort. Do you think that we need something similar to? Um, talk about and address some of these parts of our history?
1: First of all, I can't believe that people, students were still making missions out of popsicle sticks. I mean, I had to do that, but I, I thought surely they stopped doing that in the 80s, Or, but no. Okay. So I am, okay. I think there's good news on uh, some fronts. Um, I know the state, the governor signed into law, Right a new bill that would require that students in the Cal State system take an ethnic studies class is that right? We'll have to fact check that, but there's a new law about college education that should should make that uh a, should make a difference. Um so that's good news, but I think you're right to say, you know, we that's too late, right? If if you wait till students are in college, um, to introduce them even to this multiracial history and this history of racial justice and also the history of segregation and white supremacy. It's too late, you No, know? So I think, I think there, do need, there, there definitely needs to be an effort to get this into the schools earlier. And I know there, there are lots of committed teachers and educators out there who've been doing just that. So I, I can't really speak to the state of public education right now. Um, because obviously I haven't lived there in a long time, but um, I think that that's so important, so important for that to happen, um, beginning, you know, in kindergarten, in preschool, right? Um, so I hope that's happening. I know, I know a lot of teachers have worked a long time to, to make that happen. It's 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 very difficult for students to unlearn the kinds of things that racism teaches us when we all grow up. It's very I mean, waiting till college—that's tough. And uh, of course, not all Californians get to go to college, right? So it's it's very tough. I, I wish I had an answer for that. That's almost a, that's a question that I think is really hard to answer. You know what what we can do about that? Um, but I bet there are lots of other people in the state who are I know are doing things right now uh, to get those lesson plans into the primary schools.
0: One aspect of your book that is incredibly compelling is your discussion of women's roles in fighting for equality. You know, we, you mentioned a couple of people even in the last couple of minutes. Was there one woman or group of women that really resonated with you? And what lessons do you take from their story?
1: Well, that's easy. I would have to say right away, the person I start my book with and I end my book with is Ruby McKnight Williams and Dr. Edna Griffin. These two women who, you know, ran, uh, were, you know, president of the Cassina NAACP um, for the years when they're fighting the lawsuit. And they are amazing examples of the fight against Jim Crow. You know, this is, they are up against a city that has all the resources in the world to throw at the lawsuits, right? I mean, there's no way that that the NAACP and their allies financially can ever, ever stand up to the city in terms of dollars raised, right? But they were not daunted, these women. They fought and fought and fought. And every single interview they gave in the Pasadena Press and the LA Times, and this is years after the case, years in the 70s, right? And the 80s, they spoke about the significance of the Brookside Plunge case. And how difficult that was to keep people can invested in it, right to keep people to, to fighting it and to keep raising money. So th- they are just such shining examples of the kind of the kind of commitment that Californians certain Californians had to demanding racial justice and gender justice. know Ruby Williams fought also in the city hall for black women to have jobs in the city besides just you know working in the restrooms in the public restrooms as an attendant right when she got to California from Kansas she was astounded in southern California at how deep segregation was how how deep the roots were in, of jim crow and she used to say over and over again the only difference between Pasadena and Mississippi is the way they're spelled so pretty damning right indictment again it speaks to the the difference between what she thought she would find when she came from Kansas and then what she found, she thought she would find, right. Not maybe not a promised land, but a place that was freer uh, and, and more right. Liberatory sort of, you know, a place where Jim Crow didn't have deep roots, but of course she immediately found out that wasn't the case. And she worked for the city of Pasadena. She had many jobs, during her long life. She lived to be over 100. But the entire time she lived in Pasadena, she fought against segregation in all kinds of ways. Restaurants, she she would go and, you know, integrate lunch counters. She fought for employment against employment segregation. And then, of course, she fought when she was president of the NAACP against segregation at the pool. And Dr. Griffin, the same thing, right? She couldn't have a practice because she couldn't practice at the Huntington Hospital. She couldn't see patients there because that was segregated. So she had to start her own office connected to her house where she was delivering, where she delivered babies. And she, she was an amazing, amazing woman who fought up against, again, the city, the passing and Improvement Association, and for years helped raise money and also had to kind of convince some people, both these women, who were maybe wary of committing themselves to the NAACP's fight for good reason, right? People were harassed and intimidated on their jobs and in their neighborhoods if you were found to be a fighter, but they were fearless. So I I think I would hold them up and say that, you know, they should be uh, acknowledged anytime we can uh, in the city of Pasadena.
0: So you've written about Mary Pleasant Mm -hmm. and you've written West of Jim Crow What is your next project that you're starting to think about? And kind of what what classes are you teaching um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago?
1: Well, I have, you know, it's it's, uh, not surprising here at UIC. I teach classes in African-American history and classes on the U.S. West. Um, So I teach a class just called the History of Jim Crow. And I teach a class. It's called Imagining the American West. So those are two classes I teach. I also teach the um, U.S. Women's History class that the history department offers. So they kind of fit my profile pretty well. One thing that I do also get to do here, which I love to do is I teach a class called public history, which is about museums and you know, but it is what it says, history in public. So memorials and living history sites and museums, reenactments, that kind of thing. So that's been especially exciting to teach these days when Confederate statues are tumbling down and lots of debates about the role of history in public. So that's another thing I teach. And that's been really enjoyable. It's a great thing to do in Chicago to teach African-American history because it's everywhere you everywhere you look, right? And we have some outstanding museums and archives dedicated to African-American history here. So that's been great. I'm a board member of the Black Metropolis Research Consortium, which is an organization that has 17 members, all museums and archives dedicated to Black history in Chicago. So mm-hmm. it is an amazing place to do that work. And I have wonderful students at UIC. So I, I've really enjoyed it here. Um, and next, I am actually leaving. Uh, I'm not leaving this, the United States, but I am writing about Black expatriate. patriot Um, named Marie Singer. She was the first black psychoanalyst in the United Kingdom. She grew up in Mississippi. So there's where my Jim Crow history comes in. Her family fled. um, Partly they were fleeing the Klan uh, and they moved to New York as part of the Great Migration. And then she decided she wanted to be a social worker. So she went to Smith College to get a master's in social work. And then she went to Europe. Because she couldn't, because of Jim Crow, she couldn't really find adequate work as a social worker in the United States in the 40s. So in 1948, she left and she started working with war orphans in Germany, and then she went to London and she became a student of Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, and became a psychotherapist and then um, taught at the University of Cambridge in England. So she's a fascinating character, and I'm working um, with another scholar, Jane Rhodes, and we're working on this biography of her that uh, is very, it's a great project. It's different than what I've done before, but like my first book, it's a biography of an African-American woman. And like my second book, it starts with the story, with the history of Jim Crow. So it kind of combines a lot of my uh, scholarly interests. So that's what I'm doing now.
0: Well, that's a lot. It's fun. We're running out of time and I want to be respectful of what, what time you've been generously given to us. This book was published in September. Is that correct? Your book Correct. so right. during lockdown yeah right before serious lockdown in the fall yeah what's it like to promote a book during a pandemic?
1: Oh yeah it hasn't really been too much uh, it, ha- it hasn't been happening too much. It's really sad you know one of the things I had really looked forward to doing was to give back to the people who shared their stories with me and to the museums and archives where I work and the public library. So I had been so looking forward to maybe doing a talk at the Pasadena Public Library or doing a talk at Romans or, you know, coming back and doing something in Allensworth. Um, But all of that, of course, came to a grinding halt. Please tell me that Romans is still open. Absolutely. Okay, good. Because I was really worried there for a minute that it it wasn't going to make it. But I really, you know, I've done a few virtual Book talks, but it's really not as you know. It's just not the same. But I hope you know brighter days are on the horizon now, and I'm hoping that maybe this summer or fall or when things get travel becomes possible, um, that I can do some of those things again. Um, you know, books are usually, you know, the kind of lifespan is pretty short. <laughs> they they're sort of you you promote them for the first year, but um, I I don't know. I, I hope that. With Because of the pandemic, mine I might be able to come out there anyway, yeah. even, even after a year has passed and uh, do some promotion. And also just, like I said, have some conversations with folks. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book was I was hoping that it would get assigned in classrooms. And I had a couple of invitations to come and talk to classes, but then the classes went online. And so I hope that all happens in the fall. Maybe I can do some of that Great. again. Great sure. Yeah.
0: We do as well. Well, the book is West of Jim Crow, the fight against uh, California's Colored line. Lynn, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Y- your book is incredibly insightful. It's very important and extremely timely. We're seeing voting rights laws reintroduced across the country. So absolutely, it's ac- absolutely great read. Um, you can find it online, but also at independent bookstores, like you mentioned, Romans. But there's some other great ones in town. So thank you very much, Lynn. All the best to you, and, and hopefully we can keep in touch.
1: Let's do that. This has been great. Thanks so much, and I really, really appreciate having this time with you. It was a great talk.
0: Again, I many thanks to Dr. Hudson for coming on the show. If you're interested in learning more about Lynn's work, her books The Making of Mammy Pleasant and West of Jim Crow are available wherever books are sold but please consider supporting your local bookshop if you can. And thank you for listening. If you're a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, please let me know as I'd love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and several other platforms. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember to stay safe, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.